Um, yay, we get everyone's favorite passage today about judging people. Um, at least it's judging by how we spend our time. It's everyone's favorite activity. So, you know, we live in this age when everyone is a critic. Um, anybody, I mean, really, anybody, you can be anybody, can post reviews on anything online, right? It used to be you'd have the movie reviewer and the paper, the restaurant. And never mind that, right? Now everybody can do it. You don't even have to prove that you went there, that you read that book, that you, you know, have you noticed on Amazon they'll say verified purchase? You can see like, oh, well, at least this person actually did buy this product before they decided I'm going to judge it, right? So um, I spend a lot of time on Goodreads because I love to read and read and read. And um, I used to... Um, I used to leave reviews on everything that I read. It would help me because sometimes I would check out a book from the library and then I'd be like, oh yeah, I tried to read this before and I didn't like it. So I didn't, um, I, it helps me to keep track of things I have tried. Um, and if you go on Goodreads or really on anything, Goodreads lets you like a review if you like it, right? But what I've tended to notice is a lot of times on very popular books, the review that rises to the top and gets the most likes is actually the most critical one because everyone loves to whine and complain and do it in funny ways and then everybody says, oh, that was so funny how you judged that person and like, right? And so those reviews move to the top. And so I have started on Goodreads, actually, if I'm gonna look at reviews of a book, I sort them and I sort them by newest and text only, because that gets rid of that critical review, which is just popular complainer putting out their thoughts, right? Um, it moves it down and just says, who's read it lately and what did they think? And I don't care if their review is popular or not, I just want to know. Um, so anyways, I used to leave negative reviews, uh, not out of vindictiveness, but out of, you know, remind myself I didn't like this book. But then I stopped because when I started writing books, and started getting negative reviews, I thought, oh my gosh, I hope I have not been creating that feeling in other people. And so now, I only leave a review if I can say three stars or more, and if it's two or one or zero, I make sure the person is dead. Because it's like, nobody needs to feel like, oh, I spent months to years writing my baby, and oh my gosh, this was the worst thing ever, it's so stupid, nobody needs that. Okay? That's like going up to somebody and telling them their child is ugly. Okay? Just, it's, it's not worth it. Um, so yeah, I've discovered judgment hurts, right? And it is directed at you. And I think we've all experienced at one time or another, hopefully nobody's ever gone up to you and said, your husband's ugly, or your, your child is ugly, right? Hopefully no one's done that. Um, but we have all discovered that it is a lot easier to dish out than it is to take, right? Nobody likes to get a taste of her own medicine. Um, and so this is what Jesus is getting at when he starts in Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Um, so well, why not, Jesus, right? Judging is how our world does operate, like it or not. Um, we get graded on things in school. At work, we get performance reviews. Um, we ask for feedback so we can improve. So, what, Jesus, how could the world operate if we all were on just kind of not even a pass-fail, but just there you are? 
You've done a certain amount of work. I have nothing to say about the work you do, right? I mean, how would the world operate? So I think he is talking about a specific type of judgment. And that is um, judging here. Number one, it means to decide where your brother fails as a person because he does not meet your moral or behavioral standards. So this isn't like, so my youngest, she decided to try diving this year. She's never been a gymnast. She's never done diving before. She was terrible, right? I'm not even a diving judge, but you know, it's like, oh my. So, um, but, so you know, you need to have a little judgment to can grow. But this is a different kind of judgment, right? This is not judging Lucy morally because she's a terrible diver, okay? Um, and then number two, the problem is, you not only decide what you think of them morally and behaviorally, but you also decide exactly what should be done to fix that problem, right? You've got a really good idea of exactly where their problem is and exactly what would fix it. Um, Jesus says, you know, do I have a slide for this? Yes. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye? When all the time there's this big giant plank sticking out of your eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye, right? A very comic image. He's saying, you know, you have no idea what you're even talking about because you're walking around like it's like you have blinders on, right? You don't even know. Paul glosses this verse this way in Romans. He says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, that when you judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Right? The same thing, right? Make sure, if you are judging somebody according to moral and behavioral standards that you have put in place, that you yourself follow those standards. I, I've been teaching this, um, this 19th century novel class at Timber Ridge, which is like the uh, sweet, well, actually sweet, beautiful old folks home in um, Issaquah. No, they call it that themselves. They're like, oh, they love having you to the old folks home. Um, and I always run into Bell Press people there too. Anyways, but we read George Eliot's Middlemarch, or at least I read it and talked about it, they all smiled at me. So, and she had this, she had this quote on it in Middlemarch. Will not a tiny speck very close to our vision blot out the glory of the world and leave only a margin by which we see the blot? I know no speck so troublesome as self, right? We are, I mean, all we have is this teeny little margin with which to view the world because our self is blocking our view so much. Okay, so what is wrong with this kind of judging that Jesus talked about? There's lots of things. The first thing is, we all hold warped measuring sticks. You remember that in Mary Poppins, where what is her measurement? She's practically perfect in every way, right? Um, I love going to our doctor's office because they have a warped measuring stick. You know how they always weigh you and then they do your height? All my life, I've been five, three and a quarter, but at my doctor's office, they said, oh, you're five, three and a half. And I said, I grew! I have never been five, three and a half in my life. And then I was even taller the last time I went. So I was so thrilled. And uh, my son, of course, who's a swimmer and wants to be taller, I'm like, you'll love it. They add like a half an inch to your height. It's great. 
I'm supposed to be shrinking now, but actually I'm growing. Because my, I don't know what they do, but they've got a warped measuring stick. And this is what happens when we look at ourselves, right? Um, we cut ourselves all kinds of slack. Like, well, I was in a bad mood. Oh, you know, that was the day that this and such happened, and that's why I behaved in that and such way, right? And oh, you know, it was because of this and this and this, and I was hangry, oh, I didn't get enough sleep, and that's why I did this. We cut ourselves all kinds of slack, right? We know our excuses. Um, but when we look at someone else, and they do that terrible behavior, we, that doesn't even occur to us, right? We have to revisit the situation to think later. Maybe they, too, were angry, didn't get enough sleep, somebody said something mean to them, right? They, they got a terrible diagnosis, right? We don't think about all those things. And so, um, God loves fair measurements. There are verses in the Bible about not using one set of weights for one person and another set of weights for another person, right? And he's talking about, you know, when you measure out grain, don't put in those certain weights for your friends and other weights for people you don't know, right? God loves fair measurements. So Jesus is saying, you know, be careful. God loves fair measurements. If these are the measurements you want to use on everybody, well, God will want to be fair and use those same measurements on you. So if we think about how we respond instantly to people, that should be a little bit scary for us. Like, oh, please. Do not apply the measurements to me that I just applied to that person. Um, so yeah, so we all hold warped measuring sticks. That is our problem. Second problem, obviously, judging hurts the one judged. This is why it's painful to have teenage children. Um, they are quick and they are merciless when observing your failings and bringing them to your attention. Here's just a random selection of ones I've heard. Um, you look old. You're getting wrinkled. You always make a big deal out of things, and that's why nobody wants to talk to you. <laughs> You're so loud. You're so mean. Um, <laughs> the other day, Jackson came home, and I said, I said, how was your day? Fine. I said, do you have a lot of homework today? I always do, so why do you ask me every day? The answer is always yes. I said, I was just making conversation. So then I went to my younger daughter later to find sympathy, and I said, this is what I said to Jackson, and what he said to me, she said, you know, when we come home, we really need to unwind, and you just attack us with these questions. I said, I asked you a stupid question, and I said, and secondly, when you're older, no one will ask you how your day was, or if they ask, they don't even care, and you'll think of your mother, who actually was sort of mildly interested. So anyway, judging hurts the one judge, okay? Um, number three, judging hurts the judge. We don't think about this one so much. But when we are in judging mode, which is like kind of our normal mode, when we are in judging mode, remember what George Eliot says, we've got, we've got this big thing, self, in front. And so we can't, we can't see ourselves and we cannot see other people as God sees us or sees them, right? Um, we experience metaphorical blindness to what might be going on with them, but also what we, uh, what we need in terms of grace and healing, right? If, if we've got this big thing in our eye, we can't see our own sin because we're busy looking out of the margins to see how everybody else is doing, right? And we can't see our own needs for forgiveness. And we can't understand then 
God. We can't see God clearly because there's so little space left. And it's like, well, I don't need any grace and forgiveness, and why should God extend it to that person? Right? We start to see everything all messed up. Judging hurts the judge. Um, and you think, well, how can you? How can we not see something so big as a plank is in our own eye? But you know, I you know I love to read brain books. And the amazing thing about our vision is we actually see very little, but our brain is constantly filling in, right? And saying, well, we assume this, right? We catch the movement, and then our brain says, well, I took a snapshot earlier, and here's kind of what you saw. Before Scott discovered he had glaucoma, I remember he got a new set of contacts. And he was going around the house. He doesn't remember this, of course. He was going around the house for two days going, I love these new contacts. Oh my gosh, I see so much better with these new contacts. Then he went to the eye doctor and discovered he had glaucoma, right? And the doctor covered up one eye and did all these tests, and he realized he had these big spots in his vision, in, especially in one eye. But he did not know because, of, you know, when you've got both eyes open, your brain fills it in. We don't look and see the world with big holes in it. Our brain just fills it in. And you have to do all these tests to figure out, actually, you have giant holes in your vision. I think that's kind of how it works, right? We fill it in, we fill in, we think we're seeing everything, but actually we have glaucoma and we are missing lots of things, especially about our, ourselves and our own hearts. So judging hurts the judge. Um, so I have, like I said, I've reined myself in as a book reviewer judge, but I am a judge in another area of my life. I'm a swim official and I thought, you know, swimming actually has something good to teach me in this area. Because they say, you know, when you're watching a swimmer, they say, one, observe, don't scrutinize, you know, don't go looking to find things wrong, just watch them. And then they said, what you need to study is what it looks like when it is correct, right? You don't need to study the 85 ways people can do the stroke wrong, you need to learn what it looks like when it is correct. And then it just sort of catches your eye if it is not fitting that standard. And I, so I thought, ah, you know, what we can do is never mind what everybody else is doing wrong. What we can do is say, Lord, help me straighten out my yardstick. You know, help me figure out what are you like? What is holiness? I want to know what holiness is. Let me keep looking at you. And this is what Paul says, right? Whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever the, you know, look at God. Look at what right looks like. Stop worrying about what wrong looks like. Look at what right looks like. And then you will have an easier time observing yourself. Oh my. What a sinful day I've had. <laughs> you know? When I compare that to God, I really kind of fell short. Focus on the yardstick, right? Focus on what it should look like. And then the other thing they teach you is they say, always give the swimmer the benefit of the doubt. You know, when you come into the wall on the breaststroke or on the butterfly, you have to do a two-hand touch because it's a simultaneous stroke, right? And sometimes you only see one hand. And so you say, aha! That was a one-hand touch. That was illegal, right? But then, you know, you'll go and talk to somebody and they'll say, well, where was the other hand? I don't know. Well, how do you know that other hand wasn't there below the water and you just didn't see it? I don't know. So they say you have to give the swimmer the benefit of the doubt, right? That person who cuts you off in traffic, you do not know if they just came from the doctors and got that horrible diagnosis or if their spouse just said, I want a divorce. You do not know that. Give them the benefit of the doubt. You do not know what that person brings into their day. And they need someone to make excuses for them too, right? And then just, Lord, I know according to your yardstick, maybe we're falling short down here. Help us. Okay, so let's keep going. Uh, don't give dogs what is holy. 
And don't throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. See the lovely picture I found of dogs and trash? Um, you know, dogs and pigs, they get a very bad rap in the Bible. Uh, and they think of them as unclean animals, not precious pets. You know, Lucy, my bad diver, my youngest, she told me her latest dream is she would like to have a pickup truck and listen to country music and have a teacup pig named Jorge. God gave you the most character, and I thought, well, that is an achievable dream at some point in your life. So good. Anyway, but dogs and pigs have not been seen in the Bible as precious pets, right? And you don't even have to be around the most adorable dog for any length of time before you understand why perhaps they have the reputation they have. You know, they love to eat disgusting things, um, even body products. They stick their noses in crotches and behinds if they can reach them. Um, they try to hump things in a really embarrassing way. And you know, as owners, even if we have dog lovers, if we could wave a magic wand over them and just magically cure them of all these disgusting behaviors, we would, right? Dogs are wonderful, except for when they're disgusting. Um, so I read Americans spend an average of $140 a month on a pet dog. And I, I found this uh, lovely food they sell for Cocker Spaniels. We dogs at these wonderful dogs, actually they just died. But anyways, that their mom was always, if, if they had an upset tummy, she would cook salmon for them. She cooked bacon and rice, <laughs> it was crazy. So I found this diet for Cocker Spaniels. It said, hormone-free oven-baked chicken with Carolina sweet potatoes, steamed yellow squash, broccoli, fine ground California carrots, and oven-roasted Idaho russet potatoes, Fresh baked whole wheat croutons, freshly shredded Wisconsin cheddar cheese, cottage cheese, garlic, and canola oil. So this is an everyday version of giving dogs what is whole. Right? <laughs> dogs will eat things that have been stuck to the floor for weeks. We do not have to give them freshly shredded Wisconsin cheddar cheese. They will eat things the baby threw up. I know, because that's what our dog used to do with Holly. Um, I go to get a washcloth and it's like, oh, where did it even happen? I don't even know. I can't even find the spot. Um, so the only reason to buy a certain few food over another is if you want to control the end product, right? Um, so what does Jesus mean by trying to give dogs holy things? He says, you know, if you are spending your life trying to know God better and better, to understand him better, to love him more, to obey him more and more, that means he's precious to you. He is precious to you. He means something to you. And we don't have to be alive long to realize he is not that precious to many people, right? Um, many people are not interested at all, or they are actively hostile. And they, you know, and Jesus says, you know what? If they do not want to hear about God or what he means to you, you have to be able to let that go. Okay? And that is a hard word to hear, especially those people who are our family, right? Our family, Christina's family, right? Um, Jesus says, you have to let it go. You put it out there. If they're not interested, you have to let it go. Um, maybe they will later, right? You have to move on. We are not responsible for how people respond to Jesus' message. <sighs> but we, he says, okay, so don't keep beating people over the head if they are not interested. Do not keep beating them over the head. But where are we to persist? Then we move on. Okay, we leave the dogs to their trash. And where are we to persist? Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. 
Or what man of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Oh, I wonder about this passage. Maybe if you have ever asked God for something and not gotten it, you have wondered about this passage. It seems very straightforward. It seems very unqualified. Ask God for things and he will be delighted to give them to you. You know, go looking for what you want and you're going to find it. And if a door looks closed, just knock on it and watch it swing open. You know, and as the text stands, no wonder there is such thing as a prosperity gospel. You know, name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. There it is in black and white, right? Just ask and God's dying to give you good stuff. The Tesla and the big house and the trophy spouse and that kind of thing, right? The only problem is, and I'm sure followers of the prosperity gospel surely must have discovered this, is it doesn't work, right? You don't have to, um, there are plenty of things we ask for. Um, granted, usually money or looks or a certain relationship or a certain school or a certain job or a certain thing for our kids, and we don't get them. All right, fine. Well, maybe we didn't. Maybe we didn't ask and keep on asking, right? You've hear, heard everybody say the verb form is you got to keep at it, right? It's like okay, maybe maybe I didn't persist. Is that problem number one? When the answer seems to be no, maybe I didn't persist. And I can think, I can look back on occasions in my life where I would ask for something once and then forget all about it, and then I think later, oh, I I should have kept praying for that and I didn't, you know. Um, so maybe we didn't persist. And the answer was no. Um, and, and so that's one possibility. And theoretically, we understand that God is not a fairy godmother, right? He's not in the business of granting wishes. Um, but maybe he should have mentioned it. Because in that, in that passage, it sounds like we just won the lottery, right? That what is the 1.6 billion? Who needs 1.6 billion if we could just turn around and say, God, I want a Tesla. And then there it would be, right? Um, James, of course, and ever since, people have been qualifying this text. So James qualifies it. And he says, I don't know if I have a slide. Do I have a slide? Ah, were our requests selfish ones? James says, what causes wars? And what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. Mm, there it is. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So it's like, okay, was I asking for selfish things out of selfish desires? Jesus didn't say, but James says, that's not a good reason and that's why you didn't get anything. Okay, okay so maybe we didn't get it then. So the third possibility I was thinking is, is the answer definitely no, or are we supposed to keep on asking? You know, this past summer, um, we had these lovely visions of going on our first ever family mission trip. We were going to take the kids to Nicaragua. And then, of course, <sighs> Nicaragua decided to blow up and have all sorts of problems. But, you know, we're like, who cares? The place we're going, people have gone in our church for years. It's far away from the airport. Nothing ever happens there. And sure enough, nothing was happening there. So we made our reservation. And they canceled it. And they didn't even tell it. We just happened to find out somehow. So it's like, okay, weird. We made 
reservations on a different airline. And then they canceled the flight. So I'm like, okay, now we'll go back to the red eye on United. So we made third reservation. They canceled the leg of it. So I was like, okay, we can get there, but we cannot come home. So then we thought, okay, well, we'll try one more time. We'll ask and keep on asking. We'll try one more time, but if it cancels again, then we'll take that as a no from God, right? So we did it again. They canceled the return flight again. So this was four times. And each time they canceled, of course, it's like 45 minutes on the phone with these people. So anyways, um, and even then we're like, are we supposed to persevere? We said, well, we did say, if it got canceled the fourth time, we weren't gonna, but finally the guy who was taking us said, it's canceled. We're not going. We said four times, and we're like, thank you for making a decision. <laughs> we were unable to make a decision. And then, of course, Nicaragua calmed right down and nothing happened. It's like, what was that about? Lord, I felt like that was a good request. Can we have time as a family before everyone goes every which way? Lucy said, oh, I really wanted to go. I thought it would help me with my narcissism. <laughs> it probably would. It would help us all with our narcissism, right? Um, so we don't know, right? And, and sometimes you can't tell. Lord, do you want me to keep asking? Is this no a no? Some, Jesus, why did nobody ask him about that? Like, how, Lord, how many times should we ask? Ask three times. And then if the fourth time, it's no. That would have helped, right? Um, okay. And then what about when we ask for good things? When we ask for someone to be healed, right? We ask for someone in bondage to sin or to a substance to be set free. We ask for God to put a marriage back together or to heal a relationship that is broken. We ask for God to renew love in our hearts when we don't feel love anymore. Why would the answer ever be no? We can't understand this one. This is the one I don't like and, and the one I want a footnote about, right? Or the one I want, okay, James, I understand the selfish desire one, but what about the unselfish desire? Right? And this is where people say to you, oh, God works in mysterious ways, which is true, but irritating, right? I'm unhelpful in the moment. So I was trying to think about this passage. And um, what do we do, Lord, what do we think when we ask for bread and it feels like you gave us a stone? What do we do? And this passage tells us three things. <sighs> what we still know about no. The first thing it tells us is that God loves us and loves to delight us as we hold our stone. This passage says God loves you and he loves to delight you. Um, and I hope we can all think of a moment when we were delighted by God. We were delighted. Um, he gave us something we didn't expect or hope for. Um, he gave you a moment of joy so pure you still think about it sometimes. That is the God who loves to delight us, right? That is the God we weren't even asking for bread and he gave us that three-layer chocolate peanut butter cake from Dairy Market, right? That is the God who loves and delights us. And when we're holding that stone, we have to think, okay, this is what I see. I asked for bread, I got a stone. But I know Jesus tells me God loves me and he loves to delight me. And I know that because I can think of that time when he delighted me. Okay, not always helpful as we grab our stone, but it's something, right? That's a take on faith kind of thing. Okay, second thing this passage says is sometimes the bread tastes more like hardtack, right? 
but that doesn't mean it isn't bread. Um, and hardtack, you don't like to read sailor books in the 19th century. You know, they would make that really dry, nasty bread that wouldn't go bad so that they could take it on long voyages. It didn't taste very good, right? They made it in the Civil War, too. It didn't taste very good, but it was bread. It would keep you alive. Um, so a god who can bring life out of death and freedom out of Christ's suffering is someone who can use the hardship in our life to yield good. And this is another faith thing, right? Um, Lord, open my eyes as I hold this stone. Open my eyes to these situations. Help me see that your love is real. Help me find the bread and the nourishment in this stone. If you have given me this, you are telling me there is bread and there is nourishment in this stone. You say you wouldn't give me a rock, so help me see it. That is a faith thing. Um, and we know we have to let go of this life. We have to, all of us, every last one. You know, we don't get to decide what point that is, when that comes. Uh -huh. Sorry about all the crying. You know, I ask a lot of people <clears throat> with health issues and things going on. Um, so Jesus had to let go of it, and we have to let go of it. So do we trust that in prying our fingers off of this life, for ourselves and for others, that God is not breaking his promises. Right? If he says, actually, that person is not going to be healed on this side, do we trust that he is not breaking his promises? His promises that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are never alone, and that we will live forever in our Father's house. Right? As you hold that stone and look for the bread in it, do we trust that God is saying, don't worry, I'm keeping the promises? It doesn't look like it, too. <clears throat> That's another crazy thing. Okay. And then, third one. Sometimes God, God's answers to our requests come when we answer other requests. This is one I hadn't thought about much, and I actually didn't notice the first 3,000 times I read this passage um, in my life, where he says, you know, after all the ask, seek, knock, and here, I'm giving you a fish. Um, he says, so whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And somehow I never noticed that verse tacked on there. Um, you know, when we pray, Lord, help me not be so lonely. Is the answer, is part of God's yes, us reaching out to someone else we suspect might be lonely, right? He said, if somebody come, be my friend. Is God saying, see that person? I want you to go be that person's friend, right? Do we pray, Lord, help that person stop being so horrible to me? Instead of God, help me love that person out of sheer obedience to you. Help me know how to love that person. So sometimes God's answers to our requests come in the form of us answering other people's requests. Um, if you have kids, or you've worked with kids, you know, you've experienced, don't you rejoice at that moment when they get out of the me, 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 and they actually start looking around them and realizing other people exist and also have wants and desires and hurts and pains? Um, I think I've told you before about this kid who came over to do a group project with Jackson. I was just in the other room listening to Calvin talk, and, um, and Calvin was chat, chat, chat. And Jackson's not chat, 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 right? But he was talking to Calvin. And Calvin said, Jackson, how did that one swim meet go that you were thinking about? And I thought, Lord, who is this child? And would he marry one of my daughters? I thought, 
former actualist children than I am. I was amazed. And my kids just hate it. They're like, Jackson will just say, yeah, Calvin. You remember Calvin, the one who, oh, yes, I love Calvin. <laughs> so, so God encourages us to ask him for things, but then he throws in this thing. He rejoices also when we start to take after him, when we as his children start to open our eyes to like, oh, you know, I want to be part of you loving others and you answering prayers. I want to be part of that. We can be the Calvins to God. We can give that joy to him if we rip our eyes off our own prayer requests. And sometimes they're for other people. But, you know, to just say, you know what I can be today is maybe I can be an answer to prayer. Maybe, maybe that's what I can do. Okay. Oh, we're good. We're good. We're going to end with four warnings. You know, they talk about the Sermon on the Mount being more of a... Um, collection of Jesus's many teachings and preachings and they gather it all because I mean this is a long sermon and it's not thematically always consistent so now we're going to end with four warnings if you're at church you know Scott talked about warnings Jesus is going to end with four warnings um first thing first warning following Jesus is neither easy nor popular this is verse 13 enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction full of teenagers on it, I think. Um, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Okay, so warning number one, it is neither easy nor popular to follow Jesus. In America, it's a little easier. Nobody's trying to kill us, right, for following Jesus. But how many of us are really on a narrow road? From listening to um, the Sermon on the Mount, I feel like, oh, Actually, I spent, a, I spent a great deal of my time on the broad path to destruction. Sorry, Jesus. Um, and I only occasionally loop back to the narrow way when I've gotten really far off track and I actually notice. Um, you know, it's, it's so much easier to be angry at someone or to be contemptuous or to be judgmental of them than it is to love and forgive them. That is way, way harder. Love and forgiveness are way harder and few people choose it. It is so much easier to be angry. Um, it's so much easier to do things to impress other people than to do things that impress God, right? We always, we spend much of our time impressing other people and very little time worrying about what impresses God. It is so much easier to spend all my money how I want to spend it on me, me and mine. I have plenty of uses for it. Um, than to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do this time? And ladies, I just want to commend you. Um, they said at the East Side Academy auction, we collected $4,000. What amazing ladies. So, hooray, hooray. Um, I know, yay. Um, okay. Yeah, it's so much easier to make my plans and worry about it and control them than it is to trust God and to wait. The broad path is so much easier. Um, and, you know, we may find ourselves not only on the broad path, you know, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you might realize, wow, I spent more time than I thought on the broad path. Um, that we may have worn a groove, and then not only do you have to go, you have to crawl out of your groove to get back on the narrow path. And we can do it over and over. Uh, you guys have heard about the times, the last time Scott and I were in Paris, and uh, we went to the Gallery Lafayette to get, which is a big department store there, to get the girls some souvenirs. And the boy, but he doesn't care, so really it was the girls. And, um, we didn't realize we got there and it was almost quitting time. 
So they, they were making announcements in French, which were easily ignorable, right? Because I have to listen really hard to try to understand. And so Scott was like, I picked some t-shirts, and Scott goes, I'm going to go to the bathroom, and then I'll, I'll just meet you. But then, oh no, the store closed. And you know how if you're in the store when it closes in America, you've got time, you go to the cash register, they ring you all up. That isn't how it is at the Gallery Lafayette. I just want to warn you. When they said it was quitting time, that meant it was a stampede. It was like the running of the bulls with all the employees headed for the exits. They're like, I am done, I am out of here. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, oh, I, I was supposed to meet Scott, I don't know where he is, I had paid for the t-shirts. And so I started to, I thought, well, I'll go wait outside. But then I got swept up by the stampede of employees and pushed toward the employee exits. And I was like, ah! I had to fight my way upstream to get out the public exit because all the employees were just, just I mean, it was crazy. And Scott got locked in the bathroom because they instantly, time to go, locked. And so he texted me, my battery was at 7%. He texted me and said, I'm locked in the bathroom, right? The store was closed the next day. And so I was like, I don't know And thank God he got let out and we survived. And he actually beat me home because he has better um, navigational skills than I do. And especially because my phone was dead. So I had to like, look at him now and be like, yeah. Um, but that was like the broad path to destruction. It is very hard to get off the broad path because so many people are on it and you get pushed along with them, right? You get pushed along on this broad path. Um, so Jesus says, try to follow me is like trying to go a different direction in the Gallery Lafayette after quitting time. Like, I understand you, Jesus. It is hard. Um, Second thing he wants to warn us is some people in religious authority will harm you. That's verses 15 through 20, and it's the one about the ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. And he says, you know, look at their fruit, because you can't always tell, because there they are in their nice little fluffy fleece, and you can't tell that they're actually wolves underneath. Um, You know, if you have been in churches for any length of time, your life has probably already been touched by this, by a ravenous wolf who was let loose in the flock and did all kinds of damage. Um, and this is, this is not a fact of life limited to the church, but it is the one that concerns Jesus, right? He's like, if we're in the world, of course there are ravenous wolves. But if we're in the church where we feel safe, he says, be careful, there are still ravenous wolves. Um, and, he, and they are extra dangerous and extra irritating to God because they hide behind him, right? That's the problem. They're hiding behind the name and character of God. Um, you know, so Jesus, Jesus says, look at their fruits, because you can't always tell by looking at them. Look at their fruits. In their ministry, have they taught Christ? Here are some of the fruits we look for in, in those in religious authority. Have they fostered forgiveness and reconciliation rather than division, Right? Um, have they tried to serve the flock, or do they want the flock to serve them? And we all know it's a bummer to hear about a pastor involved in a sex scandal, but I am equally bummed to hear about the pastors who say, I'm starting a new church three blocks away, and everyone come with me who wants to come. Like, oh, that is so disappointing to me, right? That is not Jesus when it's just like church split, you know? Um, a wolf is a predator and a carnivore. And so symbolically, a wolf pastor would be one who devours the praise or the money or the obedience 
of his flock to feed himself. So Jesus says, you have been warned. Watch out. Look at the fruit. Third warning. We can be fooled by our own disguises, right? Not just the wolves and sheep. We can be running around in our little sheep's clothing and not even realize it. Um, this is in uh, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Okay, even scarier, right? That we could go through these motions of church and what motions they went through, right? We're proud if we like show up at church and Lord, you know, I put something in the offering basket and I was there and I served at service day. You know, it's like, so what? You know, these people were like prophesying and casting out demons and doing crazy stuff, right? Um, but it didn't, it didn't matter for them either, right? God doesn't want name droppers. He doesn't want name droppers. He doesn't want us saying all the right things and checking the right boxes and thinking that's how we got in. He wants to know us and for us to know him. Real, Jesus says, I never knew them. Jesus wants to know us, right? Not to have us running around doing things for him and thinking that's knowing him. He wants to know us intimately. Um, John, 1 John says this, He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly love for God is perfected. Here's this obedience. Obedience. Somehow through obedience to Jesus, we get to know him. Right? Um, okay, which leads into our final warning. We can work hard and still waste our entire lives. That is a bummer. That is a big bummer, right? Jesus is saying, don't waste your efforts. And this is his famous, famous verse about building your house. Are you building your house on the sand or on the rock? Um, you know, when the church was getting all geared up for the big earthquake that has yet to hit, um, I remember wasting time online looking at the condos we're going to downsize to once uh, Lucy goes off to college, right? And Jackson, of course. Um, but because of all the earthquake, 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 I was also looking at, oh, like, I like that one, but let me look at the seismic map, right? Because I don't want to buy a big condo and then it just crumbles into dust. Um, when the big one comes. So the last warning Jesus gives is he says, the big one is coming. And we are all in the construction business. Ladies, we are all in the construction business and the big one is coming. Um, life is going to shake us up. There will be heartbreak, there will be health problems, there will be anxiety, there will be suffering, there will be death. The big one always comes. And so, and you know, until the big one comes, it's nice to look at that coastal property, right? Um, until the big one comes, lots of people think, I don't need God, I'm doing just fine, right? But Jesus is saying, the big one always comes. The big one is coming. So if we have spent our lives trying to follow him, trying to obey him, he says, you will not find yourselves empty-handed when the big one comes, right? And everything is gone. You will still have that treasure that you put your heart and your lives into, and it can never be taken away. So that is his last morning, and the kids are coming, so I'm gonna pray for us. Dear Jesus, uh, you have so much to say to us today, and um, we thank you that your heart is grace and forgiveness, and one of the things we can ask and seek 
for and knock on the door for is your love and your forgiveness and your grace and mercy to us. Lord, we ask for it again today. For when we have been guilty of judging other people, Lord, we ask for your grace and mercy and forgiveness. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord, when we have look at that thing in our hand and, and we get mad at you and think you don't love us. Lord, give us faith. Give us eyes to see, Father, how that stone can become bread in our hands. Make it yield something, we pray, Lord. And we ask, Father, that help us be answers to other people's prayers as well. And be like Calvin and look outside ourselves, Father. Um, and we pray that we would uh, take warning from what you are saying to us because you say it in love, Lord. That because you want to know us and you want our lives to mean something at the end. And you want us to find our hand in yours when the big one comes. We thank you for these mornings, Jesus. Help us love these kids today and um, help them see a little bit of your love through us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>